0: what is good everybody welcome to this episode of the podcast uh we're making we're making strides today we are flying through ephesians today we're getting through verse six and i couldn't be more proud of the pace that we set in these series um i was really wanting to get through verses six through eight but man verse seven and eight there's a lot of stuff um to talk about and Uh, I just wouldn't have been able to fit it into one episode and I wanted to do it justice and besides there is a lot of great stuff for us to to see and uh, to understand what Paul's saying here in this one verse we're going to be covering and uh, instead of just reading one verse I'm going to just going to read from verse one down to verse six so we can get a refresher as to what Paul was saying And, and Paul's talking about unity in this chapter this is a big chapter about unity it's been a theme that Paul's had for the first four chapters but he really hammers it in and make sure that there's no way that anyone could misunderstand or miss out on the message that he's trying to send so with that being said let's hop straight into it we're going to be reading in ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6 i'm reading from the esv but obviously if you have another translation you can read from that as well paul says this in verse 1 he says i therefore a prisoner for the lord So here in in verse six, and I'll I'll throw in a little bit of verse five as well. Paul says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul has been calling for unity within the body of Christ. And here he gives his reasoning. If there is one Lord. If there is one faith, if there is one baptism, then why would it make sense to have multiple communities that are separated instead of unified? If we have one God and one Father, why do we then think it's okay to have two, three, four, five, however many sects of believers in the body? and this is the crux of paul's argument for unity and it would be fine to separate and be unified if we have you know multiple gods and faiths and ways of gaining salvation that would the separation that we see would make more sense in christianity if we all had a different faith and a different various gods that we worship and various different ways of you know uh, making it to salvation but paul makes it clear to anyone who would think otherwise that We don't have multiple gods. We don't have multiple faiths. And we don't have multiple means to salvation. We have one way to it all. And we find that through Jesus. And Paul says in no uncertain terms that our one God is over all. Which implies not only his ultimate authority, but also... That allegiance to Christ supersedes any allegiance we may have to traditions, opinions, personal desires. And this goes perfectly with the theme that Paul has been talking about uh, to Ephesians and we see in even other letters like the Romans. Is that there are these various um, extra biblical man-made traditions and prescriptions and ways of living that have separated people. And Paul makes it very clear that not only is, is God the ultimate authority in general over all other authorities, he's also above you and me, all the believers, but he's also above any sort of allegiance you may have to these extra biblical traditions, opinions, and personal desires, which is how we are able to say, on one hand, that you can keep your traditions and your opinions, and your desires, so long as they take the knee before Christ in his commands and call on your life. So when we look at something like uh, John chapter 17, for instance, we clearly see the desires of Jesus and therefore put them before our own. John says this in uh, chapter 17, verse twenty In them, in you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So Jesus uh, commands and also desires for his people to be perfectly one, and united and unified. And and that right there is what takes precedence over my desire to have my opinions validated or upheld when it comes to the community of the body of Christ. So God is over all things. Jesus is over all things. If there is a discrepancy or disagreement between denominations or even just people within a a current congregation that is extra biblical or just a man-made tradition or a man-made opinion or a certain desire you may have, that takes the knee. Both sides take a knee to the desire that Jesus has to see his people be perfectly one. We're also told here in Ephesians 4 verse 6 that God is also through all. Meaning all things come solely through or come from God. Now, let me say this quickly because it seems that Paul is speaking here specifically about the church, meaning that God is above all in the body of Christ. God is through all in the body of Christ and God is in all of the believers in his church. However, these phrases that Paul says in these qualities of God, they also have truth in the more universal sense. So when we're talking about this, you'll hear me kind of switch back and forth between talking about God, these qualities that Paul talks about with God being universal, like all things. But then I also kind of switch back to um, how this applies to the church. I think Paul specifically speaking to the church, like, hey, church, uh, I need you to be unified because I want you to remember God's over all of you. He's through all of you and He is in all of you. But that also has application in truth, universally speaking. But nevertheless, when, when we're told that God is through all, It means that all things come solely through and because of God. Basically, nothing that exists does not do so without the sovereignty of God. And if you're like me, you may immediately start thinking of all the bad or evil things that occur in the world and think, so is God responsible for all of that as well? And to that, I would say, no. However, you would have raised a very common and increasingly popular question and statement, which is called the problem of evil. And this is an argument typically that atheists use to try and disprove the existence of a morally perfect and all-powerful and all-knowing God. And the argument goes something like this. If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and morally perfect, then he would not allow evil to exist in the world because he would be perfectly good and have all the power to stop it. However, we see that there is evil in the world. Therefore, an all powerful, all knowing, morally perfect God does not exist. And answering this problem of evil certainly deserves a whole series of episodes. And there are many great philosophers and apologists who do a great job of tackling these problems and answering them in a a very effective concise and clear way uh William Lane Craig he's one of the one of the best Christian religious philosophers probably to ever live uh a YouTube channel called Capturing Christianity he does a lot of great work talking to philosophers uh regarding the problem of evil and one of my favorite religious philosophers Alvin plantica uh, actually pioneered one of th- one of the best defenses uh Against the argument of the problem of evil, but a, a quick answer that would definitely not fully flesh out all the things and all the the various uh, rebuttals and whatnot, but just kind of a, a stock answer that we can look at here would be that God can be morally perfect and all-powerful and all-knowing and still allow evil to take place in the world He created. And there's typically two categories of evil that are mentioned when we talk about this the first one being human evil um acts that humans do to each other and the second being natural evil and natural evil would be things like hurricanes random accidents weather events uh things like that and human evil would be things like murder theft kidnapping all the things that humans do to each other we are no strangers to the evil that human beings can bring about in the free will defense is a defense that Alvin Plantinga came up with. And and this easily handles the problem of human evil. The the evil that humans cause, the pain that goes along uh, from human interaction. And simply put, it's the idea that God is a respecter of human free will. He has gave us all the ability to freely choose to do an action or not to do an action. Even if that action is sinful, and wrong. And the reason that God gives us free will is so that we can attain the, the highest good that can possibly be attained, which is the ability to love. Because if we do not have free will, if our actions and the things that we desire and care for are predetermined or programmed automatically, if we're desired automatically and programmed to do good or to love God, then it is not real love, since we had no choice to choose otherwise. God desires genuine relationship with His people. If you read Scripture, it's very, very clear that God desires an actual relationship with His creation. His ultimate desire is is love and a family and relationship with His creation. And the only way that God can attain this the only way that that love can actually be attained is by granting human beings the ability to freely choose or reject him and because we have free will we can freely choose to do evil and cause pain and suffering but because god is a respecter of free will he allows us to freely make bad decisions otherwise we would be human Machines. It's been said before that we would just be moist robots with no capacity to experience joy, happiness, or love. But however, God has given all of humanity the ability to experience these things, the ability to love in the midst of evil human beings. And He has done this by freely choosing to give us free will, so that if we so choose, We can love and follow him. And when it comes to natural evil, there are various arguments for God's reasoning uh, behind allowing natural evil and the causes of natural evil. We don't have time to cover them all here, but I would encourage you all to check out um, William Lane Craig and Capturing Christianity. And and they they have various articles and uh, papers and videos discussing natural evil. But the current view that I hold regarding natural evil, which admittedly isn't the mainstream, and I, honestly, I don't know why, it's this view that was given by Alvin Plantico, one of my favorite Christian philosophers. And he quickly throws this view out in one of his books and then continues on. Uh, but honestly, it's quite compelling. And let me explain. And, and this argument works really for uh, Bible-believing Christians. Because if the Bible is true, then the argument that is laid forth, it perfectly co-exists and coincides with what we see happening uh, in the world with natural evil. So the Bible teaches very clearly that spiritual beings do exist. And typically in popular tradition, we call them angels and demons. However, the Bible speaks about them in a more nuanced way. Anyway, it's clear that these beings created by God, these spiritual beings, that they have free agency to make good and bad decisions. They have free will, the Bible teaches, just like human beings do. And we know this to be true from one of the most popular uh, enemies in Christianity, which is Satan. We also know from the New Testament that demonic influence is a real thing where spiritual beings can have a visible effect in the physical world and with this being the case in accordance with christianity it is totally plausible that natural evil such as hurricanes or a tree falling and killing a random deer in the forest that these things could be caused by spiritual beings who are freely choosing to cause harm And this may sound silly to some. And for those who are looking for a more widely acceptable uh, answer that spans various religious beliefs, uh, you may not hold this view because it may not work with theism more generally. But it is still a perfectly plausible and suitable argument for the Christian believer. And there's so much more I want to say on natural evil and the various ways it gets tackled. But we, we must move on. So to recap, uh. God is through all. That's what Paul tells us. He's through all, meaning not, not just that he is through all the things that happen in the body of Christ, which is true, but he, his agency is seen in all things. Psalm 147 does a really good job at showing how many of the things that we see as just natural, normal processes are actually attributed to God's action and his greatness. And here in Psalm 147, we'll read through verse 3 through 18. I love this psalm so much. The writer says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their name. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow in the waters flow. So the psalmist here sees all of these things happening in the world. We're not just talking about on a personal level, right, with people who have broken hearts and various wounds, uh, but he sees this when he looks up at the sky in the stars, he sees this when clouds just go floating across the sky. He sees it when rain falls through the earth. He sees it when grass grows and when the various animals out in nature have food to eat. He sees this when ice falls down and he also sees it when the wind blows. The psalmist sees all of these things that we typically just kind of take for granted. (laughs) We typically don't look at any of these things normally and think, ah, huh, there's God. Like, like God, God put that in place. God's responsible for that. We normally just look at that and go, oh, yeah, the wind's blowing because of all these various natural events and the grass grows because there's a seed and then there's water that just falls from the sky because of, you know, the, the water cycle and all of this. But the psalmist sees God's agency in the world. And like I pointed out before, I, I do think that this particular passage in Ephesians—that Paul is speaking specifically about the church, that God is above the church and through the church and in all the church—but man, we we should definitely take some time and have the view that the psalmist had here in Psalm one forty-seven, and just look at all the things that happen day to day that we just take for granted, and understand that that's because God is working through it all. That's all because of God's agency. But going back to what Paul says in Ephesians, this is speaking more specifically about the church and we will see this context more clear uh in the next few episodes as we get further into chapter 4. We're also told here in verse 6 that God is not only above all and through all but he is in all. And I really like this for two reasons. One because Paul seems to reiterate what he says in chapter 1 verse 23 Paul points this out. He says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the, f- the fullness of him who fills all in all. And the second reason, both chapter one, verse 23, and here in chapter four, it shows us God's omnipresence. In traditional Christian doctrine holds that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent meaning he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. And omnipresence is the notion that God is not only not bound or locked into one place, but that he is present everywhere. There is no place where he is not. And this omnipresence does not necessitate that we always feel or sense God in every place and situation, uh, but it does mean That God is everywhere. And there's a great quote uh, from gotquestions.org. They're actually a really great resource for just a lot of questions that uh, Christians or if you're reading the Bible, you may have. uh, So go check them out. But They say this, quote, God's omnipresence is his attribute of being everywhere at once. He is omnipresent even when we do not experience his presence. He is here even if we do not recognize him, end quote. There are times where God's presence you, you, you may not feel it. You may not feel it emotionally or or you may not feel a, a tug on your heart or in the spirit. Omnipresence doesn't mean that you always feel God. But it does mean that God's always there. And we do see times where God's presence is made known in a very obvious and explicit way. We see this with Moses Moses in the burning bush and more importantly we see this with jesus john chapter 1 verse 14 says this that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth and what's so cool about uh, john 1 14 is that the greek word for dwelt that Jesus came and dwelt among us, it's the word skeno'o, which means to have one's tent or to spread one's tabernacle. So we're told that God himself became flesh and set up his tent or set up his tabernacle among us. And this has really important significance. If we remember back to the Old Testament and Israel's journey through the wilderness, uh, where was God's presence dwelling? It was dwelling in the tabernacle. God God gave Israel very explicit instructions on building this tabernacle that would then be the, the groundwork for the temple that we see uh, played out throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus, uh, he manifests his presence, and it's said to be among humanity. Jesus sets up his tabernacle, the place that that in the Old Testament was understood This is where God's dwelling with his people. And Jesus is now setting up his own tabernacle to dwell here on earth. That's really, really cool. Um, In the same way, Paul points this out in Ephesians 2, that the new temple, the new dwelling place for God is not the physical tabernacle, it's not the physical temple, but it is within the body of Christ. It's within the church. So when Paul says that God is in all, Not only is it a universal statement of God's omnipresence, but it is a theological statement of God's dwelling rest in the body of Christ, which is made up of all of his children. Christ is in all of us, and his presence is made known in the entirety of his body. That's how we know that God is above all, that he's through all and he is in all not just in the universal sense, but within, within his church. God is above all of us. His desires, his commands, they go before and have more authority than anything that we personally desire or want to uphold. God is through all of us. Everything that comes to be All the good things that we have, all the blessings that we have, it it all comes from an agency of God. When you wake up in the morning and you see the sun shining, yes, it's been doing that for thousands and thousands or millions of years, whatever you believe. Regardless, God put this into place. And God is in all of us. This makes what Paul says in Ephesians 2 about The church being his temple, it makes it that much more powerful because how on earth would we ever be okay with separating from somebody or a group of people that has God in them? How could we ever be okay with doing that? God chose to dwell within his body, God chose to have his presence be with each and every one of us. And what kind of Pride does it take for us as believers to look and go although you have God in you you're not good enough to associate with me. This is the unity that Paul is wanting to achieve. He he's telling us that God's above and through in all all of us so that we can truly understand the importance of unity within the body of Christ.